Now, very few people in the world want to take responsibility for their actions. Uh, In our society, it seems that those who have the most or have the most power, the most wealth, uh, they are the least likely to take responsibility for their actions. We we see this really in a variety of ways. We see it in politics. Um, I was reading this morning, in the last 21 years, over $17 million of taxpayer money has been sent by Congress, spent by Congress, to pay settlements for bad behavior by Congress, uh, members of Congress and their staff. The bad behavior, it ranges from sexual harassment to discrimination to using their positions of power to retaliate against those who cross them. Not only has that amount of money been spent by members of Congress, and again, it's, it's across parties, it's not just one, it's both, um, but the specifics are, are kept secret, so we don't know who is spending what for doing what, and they are not at all held accountable for their behavior. We see it among celebrities. Nearly every week brings us some celebrity caught on camera behaving badly, and and many times their behaving badly is actually criminal behavior in nature, Uh, and it's a part of a repeated pattern of life. Yet when it comes to accountability, there's none. If by chance it does go to court, they're typically let off with a small fine, Uh, They might be sentenced to some sort of easy community service or another trip to a high-priced rehab. And we also see it just among those who are what we might call wealthy and connected in our country. How many of us remember the case uh, last year, I think it was last year, of a young man who killed four people while drinking and driving? But when when his case went to court, he got off with probation because he was afflicted with affluenza. Now, if you're not familiar with affluenza, it is a psychological condition affecting wealthy young people, giving them such feelings of entitlement they are unable to grasp the consequences for their bad behavior, and so they cannot be held accountable. Um, And so all of this is very common in our culture, very common. No one is accountable. No one. It's not our fault. Scripture, however, says we are responsible for our actions. We are accountable for what we have and what we do and that there will come a day when God will call us to give an account for our lives. And on that day, He will hold us accountable for what we have done and what we have not done in this life. And contrary to what we see in our society, Scripture says those who have the most are actually the most accountable And they are going to be the ones that held to the higher scrutiny because more is expected of them. I want to show you this this morning. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 41. Uh, That should be page 795 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to stand on the reading of God's Word. going to read verses 41 through 48, but we're primarily going to focus on verse 48 this morning. Luke 12 and 41. Then Peter said unto Jesus, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even unto all? And the Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise steward whom his Lord can make a ruler over his household and give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find him so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, 
my Lord delayeth his coming and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens and eat and drink and to be drunken. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him and an hour when he is not aware. And he will cut him in sunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto, for unto whomever much is given of him, much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask all the more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come with a desire to learn, to grow, to be who you want us to be. Fathers, we look at this passage today. It's challenging. Uh, it is contrary to what our culture teaches us. And Lord, we do not want to let the culture conform our values and our attitudes. We want Scripture to shape who we are and how we are. So today, let your Holy Spirit come and cause us to lay aside any burdens or cares or any preconceived notions or anything that we would build up to, to keep us from taking this passage to heart and seeing how it applies to us, that we are accountable unto you for what you have given us. Help us, Father, to take this, to examine our lives, to see where we are. Lord, let this kind of be a mirror, uh, Lord, of, of the Word. As we look at that, we can, here's what we're supposed to be and here's what we are. And Lord, where there are deficiencies, that we will be bothered by them. Lord, help us to ignore the voice that will say it's okay. Don't take it too seriously. Don't get out of control. Help us to reject all of that and just listen to your Spirit who's seeking to bring us to repentance, to make us more like Jesus. Have your way. Fill me today with your Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, clearly we're departing from Ephesians this week, but this passage was a part of my daily Bible reading on Tuesday, and I just couldn't get... Away from it. It just stuck with me. Um, primarily, I guess, because of what it talks about regarding accountability that is so contrary to what our culture teaches. Uh, Jesus frequently speaks on accountability, primarily in his parables and teachings regarding his return. So when you read about Jesus talking about his return, most of the time there is this element of those who do good will be rewarded, those who do bad will be punished. And the reward-punishment idea is, is very clearly in this passage. That's what Jesus is emphasizing uh, in the first few verses, right? So verse 42, 43, and 44, Jesus is saying a, a faithful servant, a good servant is one who understands what his master has told him to do, and then he sets out to do that assigned task. And so when the master returns and he finds this servant doing what the master has assigned him to do, he will get a reward, right? The master's going to come back. He's going to call on him to give an account for his life. Did you do what I told you to do? Oh, you did. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But then when you look at verses 45 and 46, we see a different servant, an unfaithful servant. This is a servant who also understood what the master expected of him, knew what was to be done, and did not take those responsibilities seriously. And rather than doing what the master said to do, he parties and plays instead of working hard at his assigned task. And he's going to be in for a rude awakening because the master is going to return. And, and, and the, the picture is the unfaithful servant. He says in his mind, I, I know he's coming back, but I have time to square it all away. 
Like, right now I'm going to do this, but I, I know when He's going to come, and I'll be able to, to get myself ready, to get the house in order, so when He comes back, it's going to look like I've been doing what I was supposed to be doing. But the rude awakening is the Master is going to come back at a time He is not expecting it. And He's going to see that He has not been doing what the Master told Him to do. And so, He will make Him to give an account. And He will be beaten with many stripes. And He will be sent and punished with the unbelievers. Now, verses 42-46 through 46 really isn't what stood out to me so much in this passage. But it's the key to understand verses 47 and 48, which is where we're going to focus at today. In verse 47 and 48, the first part of 48, Jesus says that knowledge brings responsibility. Right? So look at what he says in verse 47. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Right? So he, he knew what the master expected of him. He knew what was required and he didn't do it. So therefore, he will be beaten with many stripes. Now, verse 48 is an interesting, the first part is interesting. But he that knew not, and yet still did things worthy of stripes, shall be beaten with a few stripes. Right? So the, the picture is, the greater our knowledge of God's will, the, the greater our accountability to God. Now, I don't fully understand what beaten with few stripes means. Uh, I can't give you the theological explanation of what that means regarding judgment and punishment and hell. All I can say is that still doesn't sound too good to me. Right? So the picture is, the greater our knowledge of God's will, the greater our, respons- our responsibility is to do that will. Even more than that, Jesus says the greater our knowledge, the greater our responsibility, and the greater our punishment for failing to live out what we know to be God's will. Now that's a pretty scary concept. Because... We know a lot. We all in here this morning know a lot. But Jesus brings it even more. He says at the end of verse 48, To whomever much is given of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him they will ask the more. This is what really got my attention only on Tuesday. The more we have, Really regarding anything that God has given us, the greater our responsibility is to God. And the greater that responsibility is, the greater, the more He expects from us, the more is that is required from us. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of James 1.17, which says, Every good and perfect gift that we have comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow nor variableness. Right? And, and the picture is, every good thing we have is something that God has given us. The more good things God has given us, guess what? The more God expects from us, the greater our accountability toward God is. We could also look at, say, Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. Now, the talents don't just represent money. They represent everything God has given us. And the point of Matthew 25, the story, is that everything God has given us, it's really His. And we are His stewards and we are meant to do His will with what He has given us. And when we do His will, again, there are the rewards. And when we don't do His will, there are punishment. We are accountable to Him. And that's the picture of what we find here. The more God has given to us, the more God expects from us. Right? 
And that's the, the main idea. God has given much to us. And so God expects much from us. You think about us as American Christians. When we do, this becomes a pretty intense thought. We have, in very many ways, far more than other countries and other people in the world have. And since we have far more, God expects far more from us. And the question we have to answer is, am I, as an individual, am I living up to God's expectations? Right? Am I knowing the Master's will and doing the Master's will? Or am I a servant that is partying and playing and I'm going to square it away before it gets too late because I'm going to kind of know when the time is? I want to share with you this morning three three ways or three of the much that God has been given that I think we will be called to account on, as particularly as American Christians. First is, we have great opportunities for biblical knowledge. This was probably the first thought I had as I was thinking about this. Think about the tremendous opportunities we have to know the Bible in America. Uh, most of us probably grew up in homes where everybody had their own Bible. We may have grown up in homes where times of family devotions were common. We probably have our own Bibles now. We just take for granted the reality that a Bible is easy to access. Right? But that's not the case in many places in the world. We live in a, in a time and in a place of unprecedented access to Bible and Bible resources. There are dozens of really good English translations of the Bible. Getting a copy of the Bible is easier than it's ever been. I did a Google search yesterday on how to get a free Bible. There were over 375 million results. And of the 375 million, several of them were like 20 ways to get a free Bible. So it's well over 375 million ways to get a free Bible. There are also Bible programs on our electronic devices. So if you have a smartphone of any sort, there are multiple free Bibles that you can get. Ranging from every translation with commentaries and devotions and anything you want. And it's all free. Now, you can pay because there are some that you can buy. But there is solid access that every one of us has to the Bible in our day. And yet, despite the fact that we have far more access than any generation before us or any country in the world pretty much, statistics show us that this generation of Christians, we are the most biblically illiterate generation of Christians that there has been, at least in America. America has long been a nation of Christians. Where the Bible was the foundation of society. People studied the Bible. They knew the Bible. But we've departed from that. And now, in many cases, even Christians don't know the Bible. I'm not talking about things like being able to name the minor prophets in order. Or name the twelve apostles or things along those lines. I'm talking about really solidly important things. I read something couple of years ago and it said the Christian body in America is immersed in a crisis of biblical illiteracy. And I think that's the fact. I think that's a reality. 
Right? Because when we talk about biblical literacy, I'm talking about things like, does everyone go to heaven? If not, why not? Where is that in the Bible? You know that every Christian, if every person who professes faith in Jesus, particularly, again, in America with all of our resources, should be able to answer that, not with, well, that's what my preacher said or that's what I've always believed, but here's what the Bible says. Here's the answer to that. Every single one. Right? Or, did Jesus die for me? Right? If so, why? Where is that in the Bible? Every Christian should be able to open up a Bible and answer, here's how you know Jesus died for you, and here's why Jesus died for you. Is church important? Every Christian should be able to point to the Bible and what it says about the church being important. And and if, if so, if the church is important, why is it important? Where's that in the Bible? Is sin really a big deal? Right, Because it's not in our culture, is it? Sin is absolutely the opposite of a big deal in our culture and yet Christians seem to act like it is. Why? Where is that in the Bible? What is a sin? How do we know what is and what isn't a sin? We should, every one of us, should be able to open the Bible and point to the answer to that. Do I need to be saved? What does that even mean? And if so, why? Where is that in the Bible? Do I have to do anything to be saved? If so, what? Where is that in the Bible? Every disciple of Jesus, particularly every American disciple of Jesus, with our freedom and our opportunities to solid biblical resources, should be able to open their Bibles and answer these questions and others like it, not with my opinion, not with, here's what I think, But here is what the Bible says, chapter and verse. It's right here. We we should, every single one of us. And that's not just my opinion. Scripture tells us to study, to show ourselves approved unto God as workmen, that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, four facts about that for us to understand. First, we are commanded to study. Now, the, the command to study, it carries with the idea of being diligent. In fact, other translations of the King James say, be diligent. One of my commentaries explained the word used for study. It says it means to make every effort, to labor, to be diligent, to do one's best, to work hard, to endeavor, to give all diligence, to be zealous, to eagerly strive, to exert oneself, and to make haste. That's how we're to study With that level of fervency and passion and devotion to it. We're also, we're called workers. And the work we're doing is in regard to the Word. Right? So we're not called workers because we're out building stuff. Study so you can be a worker in the Word. We're meant to to put forth effort and work at our knowledge. Third, we're to be diligent workers. Right? So that we... Would not be ashamed when it comes to the Scripture. And here's what I think it means not to be ashamed with the Scripture. If someone were to come to me and say, Does everyone go to heaven? And I were to say, No, everyone doesn't. Why not? Where's that in the Bible? If I couldn't point to the Bible where that was, I would be ashamed. And I think that's the picture. Now, this isn't just like 
Somebody brings some random verse. Hey, explain this bowl of judgment from Revelation. There's always going to be stuff we don't understand. I think the picture is we should study so that if someone asks us these life-altering, eternity-significant questions and we can't answer it, we we should be ashamed that we could. So we labor so that we wouldn't be ashamed. And we're to do it so that we can rightly divide the word of truth. We can correctly understand it, correctly explain it. It takes diligent work to properly understand Scripture. It takes diligent work to understand how it applies today, to understand the context of the passage and what's going on. And that is diligent effort that you and I are meant to put forth. Now, here's what makes this so challenging. Paul wrote this to a generation of Christians that did not have personal Bibles. They did not have iPhones with version on there. They couldn't get online and go to BibleStudy.com and find commentaries. Very few people had scrolls that contained any part of Scripture. Some did, but very few. For them to study, to show themselves approved unto God, it took a lot of effort on their part. Not just even in the studying, but like a church. A church might have one copy of a couple of scroll, a couple of chapters of the Old Testament and a couple of books of the New Testament. And that was guarded. I mean, that was precious stuff. So guess what it took to study it? Because it wasn't just like, hey, we're going to loan this out to you. Go ahead and take it and bring it back in a few days. No, it was it was here. You want it? It's right here. You come here and study it. You come up here and, and you can look at it and study all you want to. It took... It was inconvenient. It took time. It took effort. And yet God expected that that's what they would do. And the reality is, they did it. All it takes for us to study Scripture is to grab our Bible, our personal Bible, one of the many that we probably have, open up one of our electronic devices, push the app open, go to a website like BibleGateway.com, and we are... Ready to study. The question is, do we? Do we? If someone came up, came up to you this week and asked you these questions or others like it, could you give a Bible answer? Not an opinion, not I thought, not I heard someone say, here's what the Bible says and here's where it is. The reality is we all should be able to do that. If we can't, why can't we? Why is it that in many cases, a generation of Christians who have the greatest access to the Bible and Bible apps and Bible study and Bible tools knows less about the Bible than generations before us? I don't know. But I do know that to whom much is given, much will be required. And God has given much to us regarding the opportunity for Bible knowledge. And so He expects much from us regarding Bible knowledge. Secondly, we have great freedom to live for Jesus. Again, as Americans, think about the the freedom we have. Think about living out our relationship with Jesus. I mean, we just 
what did it take for us to come to church today? We just got up and came. That was pretty much it. It's not that way in every country in the world. They don't have the freedom to worship Jesus, to worship God like we do. If we were in China, for instance, our meeting would take a great deal of effort. Right? It would be very coordinated for us to get here because what would happen is if we all just sort of showed up at a certain time, it would alert the police and they would come in and arrest us. So what would happen is people would start arriving hours before the actual meeting. Hours. Hours before. And they would stagger in one or two at a time. One or two would come in and they would just wait. And then one or two more would come in an hour, 30 minutes later, and then they would just wait. And you couldn't come in in a big conglomerate because if you did and the police come in, you get arrested and you go to jail. And from what I understand, many of the underground church in China, many of them have spent years, years in prison. And despite the danger of them gathering, and despite the effort they have to put to just to come into the building, they do it every chance they get. They will drive or take trains and spend hours traveling just to gather with other believers. They will sit on hardwood floors and unair conditioned rooms in the middle of the summer just to study the Bible, pray together. And when they worship, because it's meant to be secret, they can't even sing out loud. They have to just mouth the words. But they do it passionately, willingly, eagerly. Because Jesus is worth that to them. Uh, I heard a guy talk about what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus in a Muslim-dominated country. And when a Muslim comes to Christ, becomes a follower of Christ, they have to come to grips with the reality they are likely to be murdered. Not like it might happen, but it is almost a certainty. It's probably going to happen. And when they get baptized, it is a great danger to them because if someone sees, they will die. But they not only live for Jesus there, they actively evangelize. Now, evangelizing as a Christian is against the law. Punishable by death. Bad death. Painful death. Hurts the whole time you're dying death. And they do it anyway. And what they do, what this guy said, is they pray. And so God brings Scott to my mind. So I pray I'm going to reach out to Scott. I'm going to share the gospel with Scott. And then I, I sort of make peace. Make peace with God. Lord, I'm going to go talk to Scott about Jesus. Save him. And if not, bring me home to be with you. Because they know that if Scott is not interested, or Scott is really, really devoted to Islam, then what Scott can do is tell the Iman. The Iman will have me dragged out. They will dig a hole. They will bury me up to my armpits. And they will gather around and throw rocks at me to kill me. And that's the danger of them sharing the gospel. And yet they are very, very active in sharing the gospel. They share the gospel knowing every single day they could die for Jesus. They share the gospel knowing that this person could tell and I could die for talking about Jesus. But they do it anyway. Now none of that's really a problem. here. We don't worry about the secret police coming in. Michael, do you have any undercover cops in here waiting to take notes and arrest us? I'm guessing no. Right? We, we don't have to worry about that. There's no 
We don't have to worry about the crime of worshiping Jesus and going to jail for it. If we decide to talk to someone about Jesus, I mean, we could stand on the street corners on a soapbox and yell if we wanted to. But if we decide to talk to someone on a one-on-one basis about Jesus, what, what is the worst thing that could really, that is likely to happen? They, they might tell us to shut up and go away. They might tell us they don't believe in God and we're stupid because we do. But that's basically it. Our lives aren't in jeopardy for being here this morning. Our lives aren't in jeopardy if we share the gospel tomorrow with someone on the street or a co-worker or a friend or a family member. So why do those in China assemble despite the risk? Why do those in Muslim countries evangelize despite the risk? Why do we so often let imaginary risks keep us from meeting and keep us from evangelizing? I think ultimately it's a matter of focus. Turn back a page or two to Luke 12, verse 4 and 5. Jesus says, and I say it to you, my friends, be not afraid of them that have that kill the body and after can do no more. But I will forewarn you whom you shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath the power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Now, what he's saying is, don't fear man. Right? And, and it's in the context, when you read the chapter, he's going to go on and talk to him about sharing the gospel and telling people about him and preaching about the kingdom. And he's saying, there is a very, in the disciples, there's a very real chance, guys, that when you go out to preach the gospel, somebody's probably going to try to kill you. And what he's saying to them, he's not saying, so, so let up. Don't do it. If you feel scared, a little bit of danger, let go of it. Just hold off. Instead, what he's saying is, if you think they might kill you for sharing the gospel, do it anyway. Don't let them stop you from sharing the gospel. Right? You say, oh, that's not what he means there. Yet, we could go to the, new, to the book of Revelation. The church, one of the churches there is suffering badly. He tells them, it's about to get worse. Satan is about to cast some of you into prison. And guess what he tells them after that? Be ye faithful unto death. Right? Don't let death, something small like being killed, keep you from living out your relationship and your service to me. And here's how it's a matter of focus. Jesus said, rather than focus on the people who could kill our bodies, we should, we should focus on the greatness of the God who, who can kill us twice, essentially is what he's saying, right? If, if, if Scott kills me, that's it. That's all he can do to me. I'm dead. I go to be with Jesus. He has no more power over me. But God, he has control over my life and my afterlife. And it's a matter of focus on who's greater. Focus on who's bigger. Focus on who's more important. He wants them to to have what we call a fear of the Lord. Rather than a fear of man. Because when we fear man, the Bible says it's a snare. If I'm afraid of what men will do, I will never do what God wants me to do. I will always let that keep me from sharing the gospel, from living out my faith, from being open about it. What will they say? What will they do? What will happen? The fear of the Lord 
it frees us from the fear of man. And it frees us to do the will of God. Again, the thing is, this is this is why the people in China gather despite the risk. This is why Arab Christians evangelize despite the risk. But here's what it gets me. With them, there is a very real fear of man that could kill their body. When was the last time an American was killed for sharing the gospel in America? When was the last time someone in Gaiman, Oklahoma was martyred for sharing the gospel, inviting someone to church, telling them what Jesus means to them? I don't think it's ever happened in Gaiman. It happens, I mean, it's probably happened in America, but it's sure not common. So they have these very real fears of very real things that could very truly come to pass. And they do it anyway because they have a greater respect and a greater fear for God than they do of man. But we have largely imaginary issues. We imagine what they'll do. We imagine how angry they'll be. We we imagine it. And that imaginary fear, it keeps us from doing the will of God. It's a matter of focus. We are more focused on men than we are on God. What are we doing with our freedom? Are we using our freedom to live in our relationship with Jesus in such a way people are drawn to Him? Are we using our freedom to assemble with other believers to worship God and to study His Word? Are we using our freedom to invite people to church so they can hear the gospel and be saved? Are we using our freedom to, to do what we can to reach others so they can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? And if not, why not? What we have to know is to whom much is given, much is required. God has given us much regarding freedom to live for Jesus. And so He expects much from us. Regarding living for Jesus. And then finally, we have great prosperity. Great opportunity for biblical knowledge. Great freedom to live for Jesus. Great prosperity. Now, money is always a touchy subject, but it's a real one that we have to deal with. Because we do have a lot. As Americans, typically we have more disposable income than pretty much any nation on on average. Now, there are some nations that are wealthier because the top 1% are wealthier But as a whole, spread out evenly across America, Americans are wealthier than just about every other nation on the earth. Uh, The average American makes thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars a year, which puts us in the top seven percentile of the richest people in the world. Which that's kind of an amazing concept. I don't necessarily think of myself as a top percentile of the rich people in the world. Yet, according to world statistics, I am, and most of us in here are as well. I mean, you realize that. An estimated 1.2 billion, 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 billion people struggle to live on less than a dollar a day. Right? 1.2 billion with a B people. They live on less than a dollar a day. And and about 2.7 billion with a B live on less than two dollars a day. Most of us will spend more eating out one time then the majority of the world, about nearly half the world, will make in a month. That's unreal. Now, I'm not pointing out these facts to make us feel guilty. We shouldn't feel guilty. 
for living in a prosperous nation during a prosperous time. We didn't have any choice in that. That was God's decision. God chose when we were born, where we were born, and how our lives are. The question I want us to think about, though, is why? You ever thought about that? Why do we have so much when other people seem to have so little? Look at this. I'm going to show you something. Look at uh, Luke 12. Look at verse 13. said, one of the company, one of the members of the crowd, said to Jesus, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Now, that was a very common practice. If one brother tried to cheat of another brother out of the inheritance, they would get a respected religious leader who was particularly supposed to be unbiased to make the decision to be the arbitrator. Jesus says, man who made me a judge or divider over you, take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesses. Now, that's, that's pretty That's Pretty contrary to our culture, right? I mean, our culture is all about get more, have more, do more. Our life is about the abundance of the things that we possess. But in the kingdom, the world is different. So he goes on and he tells a story to illustrate how important it is to not think like the world. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and I will build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, did you notice all of the times the fellow refers to himself? Right? All of the times he's referring to himself. Now, the point of this story isn't that it's bad his ground bought forth plentifully. That's not the point. The point of the story isn't that he might need to build bigger barns. The point of the story is he only thought about himself. The more he had, the more he thought about himself. Getting more didn't make him generous. Getting more didn't make him care about others. Getting more didn't make him concerned about the the spread of the gospel or the advancement of the kingdom of God or helping the poor. The more he got, the more he thought about himself. And notice how Jesus mentions this to him. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He seemed to assume that God gave him all of this abundance so that he could use it on himself and he could spend it on himself. And I doubt he would have ever said he was self-centered or self-focused. And yet the way he handled his money and possessions demonstrated that that's exactly what he was. It never occurred to him too much is given, much is required. Now I want to close with something that I think is truly disturbing. It's disturbing to me. I think it'll be disturbing to you too. Before I show it to you, I want to ask you two questions. I want you to think about them in your head and get solid answers. Here's the question. Number one. Why did God destroy Sodom? Number two. What was the sin that led God to destroy Sodom? Right, you got answers in your head? You know what they are? Okay. Let's see what Scripture says. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. 
And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Now, who answered their questions with this answer? Probably not many of us, because when we think of Sodom, we think of one thing, don't we? And yet, what was it that brought condemnation, destruction on Sodom? Consider the sins. They are only sins that a prosperous people can commit. Pride. Destitute people typically aren't proud. Fullness of bread, it pictures gluttonous. Destitute people can't be gluttonous. An abundance of idleness, that's lazy. Destitute people can't be lazy. They have to work just to survive. While they had an abundance and while they had so much, they never did anything to help anyone else. All that they took, they kept for themselves. They never helped anyone that was suffering, anyone that was hurting. They put it all on themselves, kept it all for themselves, never thought, I wonder why God gave me so much. And that, plus the abomination, which is probably what we all thought of, is the reason God destroyed them. Why do we as Americans have so much more than the rest of the world? It's not so that we can be proud, so that we can be gluttonous, and we can be lazy, while the poor and the needy suffer around us. It's not so that we can hoard our stuff for ourselves and not do what we can to advance the cause of Christ around the world, the missions of Christ around the world. It's not so that we can tear down our barns and build bigger barns. It's not so that we can consume it solely upon ourselves. We have much. And we are expected to do much with it. We are expected to help the needy. We are expected to advance the cause of Christ. We are expected to fund missions or to go on missions. We are expected to use what we have to further the kingdom of God and cause the glory of God to be known throughout the earth. And when we don't use what we have in that way and we consume it on ourselves, We are no different than Sodom. We are no different than Jerusalem that God was about to destroy in this passage. We are no different than the rich fool from Luke chapter 12. To whom much is given, much is required. God has given us much regarding prosperity. He expects much from us in the prosperity that He has given us. All that we have is a gift from God. All we have in life is a stewardship from God. And it is a stewardship for which we are accountable. There is coming a day in which the Master will return. And every servant will be called before Him. Not as a group, but as an individual. And they will be asked to give an account for what they've done with what He gave them. That day's coming for me, and that day's coming for you. When that day comes for you, 
And God holds you accountable and He examines your life. Will you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Or will you hear, depart from me, you worker of iniquity? And there's no in between. We are going to hear one or the other. Let's bow our heads.